Let me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you and I were having a conversation and I asked you, what is the root cause of humanity's problems? Uh, what would you, in your mind and heart as you thought about it, what would you come up with? And uh, I think I think we probably might start with easy things like sin, <laughs> right? But we probably have to go, well, like where did that come from? I think peel it back a little bit. So where did that come from? And, and I would contend that if we kept peeling it back, we would come down to the root of pride. That it actually was humanity wanting to throw off the authority and role of God and assert themselves in that place. To reject the creator and pursue self, right? God's way was this way. We went our own way, right? That was, that's really what the sin was. We wanted our way and we chose it over God's way. That, that human pride has driven us toward wanting to be our own authority, wanting to boast about our own achievements, right? Now, there's, there's nuance that we have to enter in at some point because sometimes pride can be, you know, we're, we're pleased with some accomplishment of someone, right? And in fact, uh, people have tried to sort of twist that into actually a virtue. But the reality of it is uh, that at the heart of the problem is self-rule and self-expression uh, the goal of ultimate self-satisfaction that is to be pleased in and with ourselves and pursue our own happiness as the top priority. And I would even say uh, if self-love is in the ultimate position, it's not, uh, it's not biblical at all. It's actually an expression of pride that all of those things come down to us exalting self over God. In fact, I would, I would suggest to you that all man-made religion really amounts to self, uh, self-salvation. We come up with ways by which we can save ourselves, find ways in which at the end of the religious quest, we have achieved our salvation in some way. That's why all man-made religions are inherently works-based. Right? We're going to offer up something that's worthy of acceptance by God. We're going to do things to prove that we were a good person. We're going to carry out these things so that at the end of it, we are demonstrated to be worthy of salvation. And, and that's why they all deviate away from what God has revealed to us. I would even contend that modern psychology is a religion in the same way because it's the pathway by which people who've denied God are attempting to make themselves whole. Self-actualization 
is the thing that you can achieve if you'll get your psychological ducks in a row. That's probably like a cliche-ish way to say it, right? But, but it ultimately is that I will feel good about myself. I will be my best self. I will be, right, at the top of that pyramid isn't submission to God. <laughs> the top of that pyramid is me being my best me and being whole because we have made ourselves the center. We have turned away from the way that God has designed things. Because that's the case, that's why the scriptures can talk uh, in ways that don't mesh well with our modern view of things, right? Proverbs would say, there's a way that seems right to a person, but the end of it is death. Right, So you, you, you might think it's the right way, but if your assessment and judgment of it is the final one, not God's, it doesn't matter how right it seems to you. If it goes off of God's path, the path is to death. And that wasn't just Solomon saying that. Jesus in the most famous sermon probably anybody knows about is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus talks about there being two ways, a broad way and a narrow way. And the broad way leads to destruction. The narrow way leads to life. I mean, Jesus said there's just two ways to live. And one of them ends in destruction. The other one ends in life. And, and Jesus, in fact, is very clear about which way is the one that leads to life. Because you remember what he said in John 14? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Right? So Jesus wasn't saying, hey, there's two ways. Figure out which one works best for you and take it. He's, no, there's, there's two ways, one of which leads to destruction, one of which leads to life, and I'm the one who's at the gateway of the one that leads to life. I'm the only one that can go through. Right? And that kind of uh, dichotomy or binary where there's just two options, right? that, that biblically-based mindset is exactly what the Apostle Paul is operating from in the next passage in this book that we'll look at. Look at, if you would, beginning verse 18, and let's uh, follow as I read down to verse 25. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well-pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, 
but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do you see the the nature of verse 18 separating the world into two categories? Okay, and these, these, are, these are hard categories. There are those in the first part of the verse who are perishing, and there are us who are being saved. That division fits with what I was just saying about Proverbs saying there's a way that seems right to a person, but the end of it is death. And Jesus saying there's a broad way and a narrow way, and the broad way leads to destruction. The narrow way leads to life. That's exactly what Paul is saying here is that there are two pathways. One is the wisdom of humanity apart from God and and it results in perishing. The other is actually the wisdom that is from God and it results in salvation. So why, why is it in verse 18 that the word or message of the cross is foolishness to the perishing, but power to the ones being saved. I mean, why is that? Well, that's what the whole, the whole passage is, is, is helping us understand. Why is the word of the cross, if I could put it that way, the fork in the road? All right. This, Message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And, and to those who've accepted it, it's the power of God. It's, it's salvation. Why, why is it? Why is this message so divisive in that kind of way? Separating perishing from being saved. Before we can dig too deep into the answer, we need to stop and just make sure we're clear on a couple of things. And that is, what is, what is this word of the cross? Right. And, and if you, we read through it, but I think you can see it pretty clearly. Look at verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. So the word of the cross is about Christ crucified, but also in verse 24, it just reduces it to Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the word of the cross is about Christ and him crucified, which shouldn't surprise us. Go look over to chapter two and verse two. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. All right, so... So when we talk about this, and I want to really be clear because um, Paul warns in the second letter to the Corinthians that people could come and preach a different Jesus than the Jesus he preached, right? So, so when he talks about, I preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, there was content to that. Not everybody who claimed to be preaching Jesus was actually preaching the Jesus that was revealed in the word of God, right? Because there are people, you can meet people that say, you know, they love Jesus. They think Jesus is wonderful. They think Jesus was one of God's prophets. They think Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was a great moral example. 
But if you sort of stop and go, so like, who is this Jesus that you're talking about? Right? They wouldn't see him as the eternal son of God. Right? By eternal, that means he never had a time when he didn't exist. He existed before creation as the son of God in the relationship of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. That, that that son of God came and was miraculously conceived in the womb of Mary and was born as a fully human person, right? God and man lived sinlessly on this earth for about 33 years, died on the cross as an act of voluntary sacrifice of himself. He said, no one can take my life. I lay it down so he wasn't the victim of some tragic misfire in the plan of God. It actually was the exact plan of God that he would come to give his life as a ransom for sinners, that he was buried in a tomb because he was fully and completely dead physically. His body had ceased to live, but on the third day he rose again showed himself to many witnesses by in, indisputable, infallible proofs, and then was taken up into heaven in the presence of eyewitnesses who proclaimed it and wrote it for us so that we might know that this is, in fact, what happened. This is what God did. He did this through his son, Jesus of Nazareth, perfect God and perfect man. It's that Jesus that Paul preached. Right? It was the Jesus Christ who was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. That's why what we tend to think is his last name, Christ, is actually his title, Jesus the Messiah. He's the one who was prophesied. He came and fulfilled it and has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father as both Lord and Christ. It's that Jesus that we're talking about. It's not just Jesus a good teacher or Jesus uh, an influential figure in human history. Jesus as some emanation of the divine. It's, it's the God-man, Jesus Christ, and him crucified, that he came to offer himself up in the place of sinners, suffering the penalty of humanity's sin by his death in the place of sinners, right? The way the apostle Peter would preach it was that he died on the cross, the righteous, the just for the unjust, right? It was in the place of the righteous one in the place of unrighteous ones. Why? So that he might bring us to God. That is, he could remove the obstacle that was between God and mankind, which was our sin, which deserved condemnation. So Jesus stepped into the place of sinners and bore God's wrath against sin so that we might be saved. And that leads us to what this text talks about, perishing and being saved, right? Again, if we're going to understand the wisdom of what God's saying, we have to understand the issue at stake and that outside of the 
remedy that God supplies in Jesus Christ, we are perishing. Or to use the words in John chapter 3, we are condemned already. Or, or the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, we are by nature the children of wrath. To be outside of Jesus Christ is to be perishing. You are on your way to destruction. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to what I said, the broad way that leads to destruction. That's what it means. You're, you're on the highway to destruction. You are moving down that highway. That's why this text says, are perishing. Right? You're on the way to judgment before God if you are in your sin. But because of Christ and his cross, you actually can be on the pathway to salvation, are being saved. Right? That's Paul's drawing that distinction for us very clearly so that we can understand the importance here of not surrendering this word of the cross, because to abandon it is actually to move down the pathway to perishing. Right? So we have to remain steadfast on that. So, so why is the message of the cross foolishness to the perishing and power to the ones being saved? And I think he starts to answer that in verse 19. And here's, here's what he's going to make clear to us, that it was God's plan to provide salvation in, in a way that shows that the wisdom of this world is actually foolishness. Right? It, it's, it's actually God's deliberate plan to provide salvation in a way that actually reveals the wisdom of this world to be foolishness. That he's, he's doing it in a way that confronts the foolishness of this world. Right? Look, at, look at verses 19 and 20. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 19 is a quotation of Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 14. And, and the context there is helpful to understand what's going on here because the verse right before this one that's quoted is one that actually shows up also in the Gospels. When, when Jesus says to the people of Israel at that point, well, did Isaiah say, this people draws near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me? So you know, you know what Jesus was confronting? He was confronting man-made religion because the very next thing he says is, you've taken the teachings of man and replaced the teachings of God. That's why you can say that you're following God. You can say that you love him, but your heart is far from him because you've replaced your ideas in, you've taken God's ideas out and put your ideas in. That's the same kind of thing that's happening here. There were people at Corinth saying, hey, Paul, I mean, this, this, like this whole crucifixion thing isn't going to work. Right? Do you, do you realize that if we preach Christ crucified, the, the people of our Greek culture will find that foolish, moronic, because it, it's a message 
that doesn't appeal to the sophisticated philosophy of the way they think about it. It doesn't, to them, it doesn't make sense as a resolution of the problem. And to the Jewish people, it's going to be a stumbling block because the idea of a Messiah crucified is, is an oxymoron for them. Right? Messiah is a title of honor and a cross is a place of humiliation. That, that's just not going to cut it, Paul. And, and here comes Paul drawing from a context where people wanted to replace God and his truth for their own thinking and says, don't you understand what God's intent is? God's intent, in fact, is to show that, that human wisdom is actually foolish. What you're thinking is, is wise is actually contrary to wisdom. And, and so he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The cleverness of the clever I will set aside. So, so think about that in terms of what, what happened with Christ coming into the world and being crucified. It was God's plan to use a way of salvation that shows the wisdom of this world to be foolish. That was God's intention. He was sending his son as a sacrifice for sinners via a way that would cause people who have pride to be offended by it, to, to think it's foolish. Right? That's, that's the point. And, and he's coming after it. Those questions in verse 20 uh, really sort of, First three cut across, I think, uh, the whole swath of humanity, right? The, the wise man is probably targeting the Greeks and their philosophy. The scribe is probably targeting the Jews and their, uh, their approach to things. And then the debater of this age sort of throws the net broadly, right? Where's the person who wants to argue with God of this world? Right? Where, where are you? Right? Because God has an answer for you. End of the verse. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? So again, that sort of asks, you know, pushes us to the question. So, so why is human wisdom in this point foolish? And it's because it leads away from, not toward God. Look at verse 21, the first part of the verse. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. All right, so again, we've got to think about what Paul's saying. He says, in the wisdom of God, right? That's what I'm saying to you. God's wise plan to provide salvation through Christ crucified. In the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Essentially, if you're going to get off the broad path and onto the narrow path, it will not be through human wisdom that you come to that conclusion. It won't be that you arrived at this plan, but that in fact you bowed to the plan of God. You recognized his wisdom in it, right? Verse 21, the first part of it has echoes of Romans chapter one and verse 22 professing to be wise, they became fools. 
ever since creation and the rebellion of humanity against God, Adam and Eve's what we call the fall, but really a rebellion against God, ever since just outside of the Garden of Eden, human wisdom wants to construct a life which excludes the rightful rule of the Creator. Right? It, 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 is, it is God's world. He made it, has the absolute right to rule over it. And humanity has gone, who are you to tell me what to do? Who, who, who put you in charge? Right? Who, who do you think you are, God, to tell me how my life should be lived? Who, who are you, God, that you think you can tell me that? Right? That's, that's really the issue. The wisdom of, man, wisdom of humans does not actually lead toward God. It leads away from God. It wants to assert its own autonomy and authority. I have the right, the ultimate right of self-determination. I have the ultimate right of choice to do what I want to do when I want to do it and how I want to do it. And nobody has authority to tell me how to live my life. That's the issue, right? And God chose a way of salvation which confronts that, which actually, actually is challenged by that. And, and you know why he did that? Look at the second part of verse 21. I'll just read the first part so you can pick up the flow of it. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Right? God takes pleasure in saving people. That's why he doesn't let them go their own way. He was well pleased. I mean, think about it, because here's the deal. Is I, you know, when, I, when I start off and I go, listen, God is not going to let you just go your way because that way is to the way of perishing. We might hear that as just like, well, God's just being an ogre. I mean, he just, he doesn't want us to have any fun. He wants to be on a power kick of some way. But here's the answer. God is pleased to save people. And when you choose your way over his, you are headed to destruction. And God wants you to know that there's another way and that comes to salvation, right? That he is actually showing you the pathway toward salvation. He's not just in heaven trying to uh, swat us down because he's irritated. He actually has shown us the way in which we might be saved. And so his, since human wisdom leads away from God, God provides a way of salvation uh, that 
if I could put it this way, is counterintuitive, right? Because here's, here's, uh, here's what we wrestle with, right? Um, in your normal interactions with people, let's say person A and person B, and person B does something to, uh, that, that hurts person A or offends person A or brings displeasure from person A, our immediate thought is, well, what can I do to win them back? Right? What, what can I do to restore the relationship? What can I do to sort of patch this up, make this better? What can I do? I mean, that's, that's our sort of normal response. And I'm not saying it's a bad response at all when we're in that kind of a relationship. But here's the problem. Here, here's God, infinitely, perfectly holy. And, and here's what happened. If you take and eat, you shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. So what we've done in relationship to God isn't like we, we spilled something on their dress and we're going to go buy them a new one. Or we, you know, we took their car out and we got into a fender bender. And so now we want to fix it. We're going to repair it. Or we said something that was un, unkind and thoughtless. So we're going to counterbalance it with some kind and thoughtful thing. Right? That's, that's not what the problem with God is. The problem with God is one of enormously, eternally significant death. So how can I make myself alive again? How can I pay off an eternal debt? I can't. It's impossible. I cannot do enough. My works, the scriptures would say, right? All of my righteousness is like filthy rags. My good works, even if I do good works, are actually only what is expected of me. Right? I don't get bonus points for it. So if I actually start like with a, a minus 45 in my grade, and then I turn in all of the rest of my assignments at perfect, I don't pick up an extra 45 somewhere along the way. Like, so even if hypothetically you could live perfectly right now, you can't make up the debt. But there's just, there's just nothing you can do. There's nothing I can do to save myself. It's impossible. So if my wise plan is a way to build a system that will somehow get me back to God, I will build my own bridge. I'll come up with my own way. It's foolishness because it simply won't work. So God, in order to show the foolishness of that, actually 
builds the bridge through his son in a way that we counterintuitively reject because we want to do payoffs. Someone does something good for us. We feel we owe them something. We trade back and forth in the human world. We don't get grace very well. And God says, I won't be bought. You can't buy your way into my heaven. You can't atone for your own sin. You can't earn my favor. I've extended it to you by my love and my mercy on the basis of grace. And and that confronts the foolishness of man, but shows the delight of God. See, what we we start to miss in our day, because I quoted it already, but let me quote it again. Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You know what modern man hears that as? Unloving. You're saying all those people going other ways are lost? How horrifically unloving. And you know what it actually is? It's the enormous display of Christ's love to tell us exactly what the way is, to come and show us that way. I mean, imagine, imagine we're in this building and, and it's on fire and you're starting to run down a pathway that's actually not going to get you out of the building, but actually is running deeper into the fire. I just, you're, you're going just the wrong way. Your power's out. It's dark at night. You're going down the wrong path. And I try to stop you and say, no, you're going, you're going the wrong way. This is the way out. And what would you think if I went, well, hey man, it's your call. Right? Would you count it as loving for me to casually allow you to just go on running down the wrong hallway? Hey, whatever, go ahead. You would think that's horrific. And what if there was some guy standing there because he was the guy that started the fire who's wanting to try and kill as many people as possible and that guy's standing over there going, this way, this way, this way. He's sending everybody right to their death. Would you think I loved you if I just ignored that idiot? You would think the loving thing would be to do is to try and stop him from sending people down the pathway to destruction. I mean, we know that. And that's exactly what God did. And that's what Jesus did. And that's what Paul's preaching. Hey, there's a pathway you guys are contemplating that actually leads to destruction. Don't you know that God, God was pleased to provide a way that leads to salvation? Right? That's what he says right here in verse 22. God was well pleased, 21. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. 
mean, Paul is highlighting the wisdom of God that flows from the love and mercy of God. He wants to see people saved. And so he's not going to accommodate their pride. He's going to actually call on them to abandon their pride, to, to turn to Christ. And just for clarity, Paul begins to show us exactly what that issue was. Look at verse 22, because here's what the wisdom of humans wanted. Verse 22, for the Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. And then verse 23, contrast that with what God actually provides. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and the Gentiles foolishness. In this case, the signs would be uh, displays of power. Remember when Jesus was, was on the earth and the, and the Jews said, show us a sign. In other words, prove yourself. Or to put it sort of like in colloquial, dance to our tune. Do what we want you to do. You must answer to us to prove yourself. And, and, the, and the Greeks were searching for wisdom. That is, they had and wanted sophisticated explanations of, of the world and how it works. That was, their, that was really the pride of their culture, was that they had these great thinkers who could, who could explain all of that. And so they, they're saying, hey, give us, you know, give us the explanation that will satisfy our evaluation, right? And here's the root issue on both of them. The one who, the one who demands the sign is putting himself in the place of authority, right? I, I want you to do a sign so that I can sit in judgment on that sign and decide if you've proven yourself enough. All right, I want you to lay out your case of wisdom and I'll listen to it and then I'll sit in judgment on whether or not I think it passes the test. They were, they were asking God, not really asking, but demanding God to bow down before them. God needs to make sense to me. God needs to prove himself to me. It's the, it's the reverse of what actually is the case. And Christ crucified is unacceptable to them because their diagnosis of what is wrong and who is ultimate in this world is fundamentally flawed. The crucifixion was at the, at, at, uh, at the very heart of it was weakness, and it was a curse to the Jews, right? And, and, and we shouldn't stumble at the word weakness because it's talking about human frailty, right? We, uh, when we sing, even like we sang this morning, right, uh, the God of life is slain, you shouldn't be singing that the deity was slain. Jesus, who's God, was slain. Because deity cannot die. 
his divine nature did not die. His human nature died, right? It is only a man that can die. That's why Hebrews 2 is very clear that it was necessary for him to be made of flesh and blood like us so that through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, the devil. And that's why Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 13, the weakness of Christ was that he was susceptible to death. He could die. He could actually taste death for sinners. But that's unacceptable for someone who wants to create their own deity, create their own concept of what is right. Because it presupposes that there is a sin that must be atoned for. Right? If I, if I don't consider myself a sinner, having a Christ who died for sinners is not acceptable. So I want a different kind of message. I want a Christ who will appeal to my ego. I want a Christ who will make me feel better about me or a Christ who will help me be fulfilled rather than a message of cross that, that communicates the depth of my sin and the, the, the debt that I owe to God. Because they didn't think they were far from God. They didn't think they needed the kind of bridge that God provided. Right? They, they thought they were just a half step of works from God or a half step of wise conclusion from God. We're on the edge of a breakthrough philosophically that, that we're going to have figured out the world and everything in it. And God says, no, you, you, you have a great gulf fixed because of the nature of your sin that could only be bridged by a savior who would surrender himself to the death that you deserved. And, and they didn't want that. Our liability to death is a consequence of sin, and Christ's susceptibility to death is the benefit of the incarnation, and Christ's substitution for sinners as the way of salvation is wrapped up in Christ and him crucified. If, if you can think about it this way, everything about our salvation depends upon the work of Jesus Christ. Right? Everything about our salvation depends on the work of Jesus Christ. And salvation is only for those who will depend on Jesus Christ. Right? The gap between God and me was one that I could not close, but God closed it by his son. And he opened up the pathway by which I might return to God. He is the one who opened that way. And so it all depends on Christ. And the only way I'll ever come back to God is if I depend on Christ. Right? If I try to build my own path, create my own bridge, then I'm not depending on Christ. And I'm not going to be saved, because look at the end of verse 21. Those who believe, those who believe, right? So, so the Jews and the Gentiles wanted something different, but Paul preaches Christ crucified, even though to the Jews it is a stumbling block and to the Gentiles it's foolishness. In other words, God has chosen the very 
message which they don't want to bring them to a position of humble submission to his way, right? It doesn't make sense by their standards, but their standards are wrong. And that's what God wants to expose to them. Look what the outcome in verses 24 and 25 are. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In, in verse 24, those who are the called are those who are being saved in verse 18 and those who have believed in verse 21. And the difference between them isn't human wisdom or the passage would make absolutely no sense. Right? So, so how does any sinner change their view of Christ crucified if all sinners, when they initially hear it, think that it's offensive or a stumbling block? The only way is the gracious work of God to open the eyes of the sinner to see the truth in Christ and now see Christ as both God's power and wisdom. That's why I look over to chapter two, Paul explains his preaching in verses four and five so that they would recognize this, right? And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The only way someone actually comes to trust in Christ as the only hope in life and death is because of the power of God. It's not resident in the sinner. It's the work of God by his spirit to convict them in the words of Jesus of sin, righteousness, and judgment. To open their eyes so they would turn from darkness to light. That's the work of God. And that work is necessary. Look at verse 14 of chapter two. But a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. When you see that word foolishness, remember, uh, you're just across the page from what he's been talking about, the foolishness of men, right? So here's what he's saying, is that the natural man hears the message of the cross and says that's foolishness, right? He says that's, that's moronic. That's a stumbling block because he considers it to be unwise. If his standard of judgment is human wisdom, he will sit in judgment on the message of Christ and reject it. But if the spirit comes with power through the gospel and opens the eyes of understanding, then it will be spiritually appraised. They will go, what? No, Christ is the power of God. He's the wisdom of God. He actually is the answer 
because they've come to see that their sin cannot be satisfied by good works. Their, their mind is not big enough to resolve all the tensions of human living. They must receive God's truth and recognize it in Christ. So verse 25 of chapter one basically just circles back to verse 18, right? Think about it. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Just jump down to verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That is the proof that God's wisdom is found in the cross is that it saves sinners. It's the way that leads to life. It's the way that restores fellowship with God, brings forgiveness of sins, brings hope of eternal life. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that does those things. And, and that cross is only seen in its beauty, if I could put it this way, from your knees, surrendered to it, saying, your way is right, Lord. Jesus is who he claimed to be, did what the word says he did, offers to me things that only he can offer, the forgiveness of my sins, reconciliation to God, eternal life forever in his presence. No one else can provide those for me. Only Jesus can do it. And he paid for it at the cross. What it does is save sinners and turn them into worshipers so that the cross, rather than being a stumbling block, becomes an, an object of devotion. We love him and we love the cross because it is God's power to salvation. So let me ask you this morning, who are you going to trust? Yourself or God? Right? If, if you're here this morning and you've been, you've been trying to figure out your own way to get to God instead of receiving his, you're trusting in yourself, right? Because faith is recognizing what Jesus did, abandoning all other hope and trusting in him alone, right? Faith does not straddle two options. Right, if I've got my feet on two things, hoping one of them holds, then I'm trusting neither of them completely. My very straddling of it is showing that I have doubts potentially of both, at least of one. Because if I was certain that one of them would hold me, that's where I would be standing. But as long as I'm trying to cover my bases, then I'm not trusting in Christ alone. It's Christ and his cross that are the only hope of salvation. And we need to bow before him and call on him as our Lord. And friend, if you know Christ in our witness, we cannot be apologetic about this. 
right? It is not loving to betray the cross. It's fundamentally unloving. We have to stand where Jesus stood. We have to stand where the word does if we really want to pull people away from the path that leads to death and point them to the one that's life. Because it is the cross that towers over everything as the only way of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending your son so that we might have life through him. We live in a world that doesn't like dogmatic claims. It doesn't like uh, anything really that rubs against what we want and what we might think. We're ready to trivialize it all or, or push it aside by uh, waving a wand of opinion over it. But if there's no truth that rules over everything, then we're destined to chaos. But you are the true and living God. And you have spoken, and what you say is true. And your word is the guide that we must have. And here we find the answer for salvation. It's not apart from the cross, but because of the cross. It's not flattering to us, but it is, in fact, the only hope that we can be absolutely certain of, that Jesus died for sinners and promised to save everyone who calls on his name. So, Lord, help us to glory in the cross, see in it your wisdom, which is stronger in wiser than anything we can come up with. May you be honored today as that truth is burrowed deep into our hearts, perhaps some for the very first time. Would you be magnified today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.